This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A man who's been behind bars since he was 15 will be released in July. 39-year-old Curtis Brooks thought he was going to spend the rest of his life in prison. But on Friday, Governor John Hickenlooper granted him clemency. Brooks was sentenced to life without parole for a robbery that turned fatal. The governor also granted clemency to a handful of other inmates. CPR's Andrea Dukakis has been covering the Brooks case for years now. Hi, Andrea. Hi, Ryan. Tell us about Curtis Brooks. Well, first, I have to say this is a pretty stunning situation for a man who's literally grown up in prison. Brooks has been behind bars for more than two decades. His case involves what started as a robbery in Aurora. It left a 24-year-old named Christopher. Christopher Ramos dead. Brooks was homeless at the time, hanging out at a mall in Aurora, uh, playing video games. He met three other boys. They tried to steal a car, but the plan went wrong. And one of the boys, not Brooks, fired the fatal shot. Mm. Two of the boys are white and spent much less time locked up. The other boy who fired that fatal shot is black, so is Curtis Brooks. um, And they've both been in prison for life without parole. Why did the governor grant Brooks clemency? What was it about this case? For one, Brooks was just so young when the crime happened. Uh, Since his trial in 1997, there have been several rulings in the U.S. Supreme Court, and they affect these inmates who are juveniles when they committed serious crimes. The courts pointed to all this research that finds children's brains aren't fully developed. Um, And, um, you know, they shouldn't be considered the same as an adult. Uh, They don't always consider consequences of a crime. And the big change came in 2012 when the Supreme Court ruled that these automatic life without parole sentences for juveniles are unconstitutional. And the court later made the decision retroactive. So the Colorado legislature passed this bill saying offenders like Brooks would get shorter sentences. But it's not like the prison doors suddenly opened and these guys were let out. Some have been, but a lot of cases like Brooks have been caught in the slow-moving legal system. Uh, So for Brooks, the governor's action just helped speed up the process. And as we said, he's expected to be released on parole in July. Okay, so Hickenlooper's action here follows a lot of precedent from that high court. I understand Brooks had other things going in his favor, though. Yeah, over the 24 years or so Brooks has been behind bars, He's developed this huge group of supporters. They often show up at his court hearings. Um, There's Brooks' elementary school principal. She's now a state senator from Maryland, and that's where Brooks lived as a young child. There's also this former juror in the case, Bruce Groday, who really regrets the conviction. He's fought for years for Brooks' release, and he says the jury didn't know during the trial that Brooks had no criminal record, unlike the other boys. They also didn't know Brooks was severely neglected at home. Grodes visited Brooks in prison and has developed a relationship with him. I know he is so remorseful for what he was involved in. I just really feel that he's going to he's not going to let anyone down. And uh, we're just so excited for him. Brooks has also been singled out by the warden at his prison as a model inmate. He got his GED while behind bars, has studied philosophy, other subjects, too. And he's apparently learned a couple of foreign languages. Uh, Here's one line about Brooks taken from the governor's clemency letter to him. Quote, you're a prime example of extraordinary rehabilitation and illustrate our hope for every offender who spends time in the Department of Corrections. You have some sound from Brooks. This is uh, on Friday when the governor made his announcement, right? 
Yeah. The governor's office had called Brooks a few days earlier to tell him the decision was coming. On Friday, the day uh, it was official, he called his attorney, Holland Hoskins, from prison. She's been fighting for this day since the 1990s. Hoskins was a member of Brooks' original defense team. And here's part of what he said during that call to her. I want to live a fulfilling life, but I also want my actions to show that not only am I remorseful for the case, but that I do hold all of these lessons, all of the help, all of the support, everything on my heart. In case that's tough to hear, Brooks is saying he wants to live a fulfilling life, but he also wants his actions to show that he's remorseful and holds all of the lessons, support, and help in his heart. Have you been able to talk to the victim's family? So, again, the victim, Christopher Ramos, uh, perhaps to hear what they think of this news. Well, I've never been able to reach the Ramos family. I know the governor's office checked in with them to let them know Brooks would be granted clemency. I also connected with District Attorney George Brockler's office. The murder took place in his district. The office sent me an email saying that they had contacted uh, the Ramos family. It said that the family was devastated by the governor's decision. The email quotes them as saying, Christopher did nothing to have his life taken, and he does not get a second chance at life. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with CPR's Andrea Dukakis about uh, a number of clemencies that came down late last week from the governor and the other men in this. There are five others uh, are also in prison, Andrea. When will they get out? Uh, Not nearly as soon as Curtis Brooks. They're expected to be released in four to ten years. These are also folks who thought they'd spend their lives in prison. Like Brooks, all were young when they were sentenced to life without parole, but they weren't as young as Brooks. Um, They've all apparently shown stellar behavior in prison, and they say they've learned from past mistakes. Okay, so very similar uh, elements in their cases that lead to clemency. Why is the governor making these decisions now? I have to think this. It's pretty typical for governors to grant clemency at the end end of of their time in office. Yeah. Some had thought, given Hickenlooper's presidential aspirations, he might not commute any sentences, but that turns out to be wrong. Any sense of what Curtis Brooks will do when he gets out? Well, if it all works out, uh, Brooks will be paroled to Maryland, where he has that big group of supporters who said they'd take care of him. That includes Joanne Benson, who's the state senator I mentioned from Maryland. Benson's also offered to give him a job. Finally, for Brooks, I'm sure this is great news, but I imagine it has to be scary, too. I mean, given that he's been in prison since he was 15, he has no experience living freely as an adult, you know. Uh, Yeah, I can't imagine what this must be like for him. He says he's looking forward to being in the sunshine. He also plans to get some medical care for things that have been bothering him in prison. He says the health care system in prison isn't very good. Um, And I hope to follow him as he gets out and gets a sense of what it's like to be free. Andrea, thanks for your reporting. Sure. CPR's Andrea Dukakis on the governor's recent clemencies. The New Horizons spacecraft made history when it took the first-ever close-ups of Pluto in 2015. Well, it's now traveled another billion miles. Its next target on New Year's Day is a rocky object at the edge of our solar system. Astronomer Doug Duncan of CU Boulder is back for our regular conversation about space science. Hi, Doug. Hello, Ryan. New Horizons target is a full four billion miles from Earth in the Kuiper Belt, a ring of asteroids and rocks. 
I guess distantly orbiting the sun. And uh, this object's name is MU69. It also goes by the nickname Ultima Thule. I've seen it called a Kuiper Belt object, a planetary body, an asteroid. Do we know exactly what New Horizons is trying to check out? What is it? We do, because there's a whole nother realm of the solar system out beyond Neptune. You know, uh, they'll, some will never forgive me, but I'm one of the people who voted Pluto out as a planet oh. years ago. And the reason is we've realized there's hundreds of these objects, and they're different from the eight planets. They're icy, they're rocky, think more like asteroids or comets, and there's hundreds of them out there. What would you call Ultima Thule then? An asteroid? Um, no, I would call it uh, part of the Kuiper Belt. Part of the Kuiper okay. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and you're saying that Pluto is more like them than it is the other planets. Oh, absolutely. Uh-huh. The, the main difference between MU69, where New Horizons is headed, and Pluto, where it's been, is just size. Hmm. You know, if you take a cake and a cupcake out of the oven, the cupcake cools off a lot faster. And that's MU69. Pluto, somewhat to our surprise, was big enough that it's still warm inside. You know, uh, part of the surface of Pluto is smooth. Something has flowed over it. Something has melted or like a glacier moved. MU69 is going to be cold and dead. Cold and dead, MU69. The National Academy of Sciences ranked understanding what it's part of the Kuiper Belt uh, as the highest priority for solar system exploration. Why is the Kuiper Belt so important? Because that's the primordial stuff out of which our whole solar system formed, including the Earth. So when people say, you are made of stars, what they're talking about is possibly the Kuiper Belt. Yes. Okay. (laughs) Um, And, you know, uh, the further back in time you dig, so to speak, the more you learn about the origins of the solar system and the Earth and the fact that such different planets came to be rocky like the Earth and gaseous like Jupiter and then all these Kuiper Belt little things. Um, So how did that happen? We want to get our, our hands on a piece of material that hasn't been processed or eroded away. Okay, you say get our hands on. What we mean literally by that is New Horizons getting its eyes on this stuff. What keeps New Horizons going? I mean, just to reiterate, yeah, four billion miles from well, Earth. Well, uh, for a long time, it was the fastest spacecraft ever built by humans. And, and it uh, might be counterintuitive, but once you start something moving through space, yeah. it's not going to stop. There's no friction out there. Mm. You know, people are used to roll a ball, it'll, it'll eventually stop. But in space, you know, even if an astronaut, lose, astronaut excuse me, loses a wrench, that wrench is going to keep orbiting. Uh, and so New Horizons is going to sail past MU69 into the void. Is it sailing there on its own power in any regard or just the, the – all, all it has to use power for is to slightly change direction. Okay. So we wanted to make sure we'd hit the target. We did a great job with Pluto and then we had to find a new target and just adjust the course slightly – to hit the new target. It's it's not fuel that it's running on, though. It's got a little bit of gaseous thrusters just to change its direction. But mostly it's just coasting. Mostly it's just coasting. The flyby of this object is supposed to happen January 1st, I guess just after the ball drops in New York, 12.33 a.m. Eastern Time, 10.33 Mountain. Uh, new Horizons will get relatively close to MU69, about 2,200 miles away. When you're talking billions, what's 2,200 miles? Will it get a good view? 
it'll get a pretty good view. Um, MU69 is much, much smaller than Pluto, like right. we said. It's maybe 20 or 30 miles uh, across. In fact, it's not even round. We might talk about that. But if you were to look out the window, so to speak, if you were with New Horizons, uh, MU69 would look about as big as the moon, as the full moon. But it will get a decent view of this. It will. And all the instruments will observe MU69, try and figure out some, some ideas about what it's made of. What fascinates me is that you can say with a lot of confidence what the size of an object is four billion miles away. How do we know what we already know about MU69? Well, there was a very fortunate circumstance, and that is that MU69 passed directly in front of a star, a faint star. Ah, which it, creates something of a shadow. It creates a shadow, just like if a plane flies over you. You can see the shadow yeah. of the plane on the ground. And, and of course, this is a star shadow, so you can only see it at night. But we calculated that the shadow of MU69 would go streaking across Argentina and Senegal. And astronomers fanned out, huh. about 30 of us. I was posted to Argentina. As a matter of fact, I was posted to a vineyard in the remote parts of Argentina where the shadow was, was going to pass. To capture this. So that gave you a sense of its size, perhaps of its shape. Is there anything really close to MU69? You mean in space yeah. or in size? Um, well, no, I mean literally close to it, like uh, oh, right well, next to it. I mean, what's kind of interesting is the shadow's not round. It's more like a peanut. And that either means that MU69 is kind of dumbbell-shaped, which is possible. Okay. Remember, these are not big enough for gravity to pull them round. So we don't expect it to be round. It'll be craggy, kind of peanut-shaped, or there's a small chance it's a uh, an object with a moon. Oh, I see that there's actually a little bit of space in between. Right. We, c we couldn't tell that. There is a fascinating – one of my favorite asteroids – is called Ida, I-D-A. And it has... Of course you have a favorite asteroid, Doug Duncan. <laughs> of course, Ryan. <laughs> um, and the reason it's my favorite, it has the cutest moon in the solar system. It has a moon called Dactyl, D-A-C-T-Y-L. And Dactyl is one mile across. One, one mile. little... You're right, it's like, like the... 5280. Like Le Petit France. You know, there's <laughs> my own little planet one mile across. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner and uh, Doug Duncan... Astronomer from Boulder is with us for our regular conversation about space science. And so this New Horizons flyby of MU69 is the farthest ever flyby of a planetary body. But NASA spacecraft uh, have flown even further out into space. Voyagers 1 and 2, they both launched in 77. Voyager 1 left the solar system six years ago. 2 just left the solar system. How do we even define like what the edge of the solar solar system yeah. is? It's a very fuzzy edge. Uh -huh. Okay, the definition we're using for Voyager is the sun, as most of our listeners know, has a thing called the solar wind, where gas blasts off the sol the sun and goes through the solar system. Eventually, that solar wind stops, and Voyager has just gone through out into more pristine interstellar space where there isn't that effect anymore. That's right. And by the uh -huh. way, Voyager 2 some listeners may remember it's a long time since it it launched, but we knew it would never come back and Carl Sagan oversaw the putting of a golden record on the Voyagers. That's the spacecraft that carries a golden record and a stylus 
and little instructions and, you know, maybe a million, well, many millions of years in the future, somebody will catch it and play sounds and voices of the earth. Huh. But I, they'll be playing vinyl. Uh, no, it, well, well gold. it's gold to be yeah. more long lasting. <laughs> and uh, I looked up, you know, a little bit of the music on there. Oh, it's music. Yeah, and some voices. We get okay. Johnny B. Good. Um, we get the Queen of the Night aria from the Magic Flute. And we get drumming from Senegal. So that would be how we present ourselves potentially to extra whoever is fun. out there. So Voyagers 1 and 2 still operating, I, get, I, I gather, on the, the power of the physics out there. You know, they're so far away uh, that it's very, very slow to communicate with them. But we still can. Those big dishes out in, in Cal- California and in Australia, they're pointed toward the Voyagers and they can hear the radio signals. How long does a radio signal take from that far It actually out? takes six hours uh, for any signal. So it's a very slow communication. For older listeners, it's like using a dial-up modem. To hear from the universe. Well, and to think that the technology aboard is from 77 when the, during it, the Carter presidency. It's very impressive that it was built so well to last like that. While those continue, NASA has shut down another mission with deep Colorado ties. The Kepler Space Telescope launched in 09 to spot planets outside our solar system. It found the first one in 2010 has found more than 2,600 since before finally wearing out. What's the legacy of Kepler, do you think? Well, I think for every listener, when you're perhaps on holiday and away from Denver and someplace where the sky is dark and you see thousands of stars, look up at those and we now realize most of them have planets. Mm. And that's part of the legacy of Kepler. Understanding that planets are quite common. Very common in the universe. And so that raises the question of how many of them might support life yeah. Like oh, I own. think I hear another program coming on. <laughs> Kepler was operated by students at CU. I think from the beginning, some of your students, uh, are you going to miss Kepler? Well, we, we will miss Kepler, but Kepler's own words keep us going. And with your permission, I'd like to quote from Johannes Kepler himself. The namesake. Yes. He said, we ought not to ask why the human mind troubles to fathom the secrets of the universe. The treasures hidden in the skies are so rich that the human mind shall never be lacking in fresh nourishment in the 1600s. So we'll keep going. Lovely way to end. Thanks, Doug. Always a pleasure, Ryan. Doug Duncan is a professor of astronomy at CU. He joins us regularly to talk about space science. To reiterate our first point, New Horizons will speed by MU69 on January 1st. And the Fisk Planetarium in Boulder has produced a short video on MU69, and you can find the link later today at CPR.org. President Trump tweeted he will announce a new Secretary of the Interior this week to replace Ryan Zinke. Zinke is stepping down at the end of the year. He's been at the center of more than a dozen ethics investigations, but he denies any wrongdoing. The number two at Interior, David Bernhardt, grew up in Rifle, Colorado. He's positioned to take over in the interim and could get the job permanently. But Bernhardt is not without controversy himself. 
I spoke recently with Juliet Alprin, senior national affairs correspondent at the Washington Post, to get some perspective on Bernhardt. Who is David Bernhardt? He is one of the true masters of the bureaucratic intricacies of managing public lands and other issues that are under the Department of Interior. He's 49 years old, has spent almost his entire career here in Washington, both working at the Interior Department under now two Republican administrations, as well as working as a high-paid lobbyist for roughly a decade. And he is someone who, while he doesn't have the top job at Interior, is extraordinarily effective in advancing President Trump's agenda there. He is a product of the West, but some of his choices seem to belie the ethos of the region. For example, he appears in favor of retooling the Endangered Species Act. He appears to want to overhaul existing agreements to take water from species preservation in favor of California agriculture. Would you say that this is more a matter of who he is or adhering to the wishes of the Trump administration? Well, that's an excellent question. And in some ways, it's a little difficult to answer in in the sense that when I put that to him, his argument is that essentially his view doesn't matter. Hmm. He is simply executing on President Trump's agenda, which he supports. That said, if you look at his career, which I have talking to people from all stages of his life, there's no question that on all these issues like the ones you've mentioned, he has only come down on one side. He he makes a very big distinction and argues that, you know, how he operated in the private sector is is separate from what he's doing now. But it's clear that he has consistently promoted policies that are quite conservative when it comes to public lands, species protections, and other issues. The water situation in California in particular, which involves the Westlands Water District, is interesting because it's indicative of the scrutiny that you know, Zinke is under as well. I mean, uh, the move would appear to favor one of Bernhardt's former clients. It came just two weeks after his recusal over the district expired, after that window of time had closed. There are other examples involving potential conflicts of interest for Bernhardt. Uh, What's the reaction to those conflicts in general? Well, certainly what you see from Democratic lawmakers and environmental groups is outrage. They are fiercely opposed to what he's doing. Congressman Jared Huffman from California in an interview with me called him a walking conflict of interest in his words. And they feel as if there's, there is an inherent problem with someone who represented, again, the nation's largest agricultural you know, district, water district, in now playing a key role in renegotiating how California and the federal government manages its water. Now, David Bernhardt, who is a skilled lawyer and loves to, you know, refer specifically, frame things in very legal terms, legalistic terms, cites the fact that, you know, both his ethics recusal on that client expired in August and also that if you look at the language of his ethics agreement, it pertains to when you deal with a particular matters affecting a specific client. And so he would he would argue that while you know, absolutely Westlands would be affected by anything he's doing out there because other parties are involved and it's not the only party involved. 
it, it does not fall under his ethic, you know, his previous ethics recusal. And he would tell you that he waited the proper amount of time as well, I gather. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, he is someone who consistently points to that, carries around a small card listing every potential conflict of interest he has. He he really tries to demonstrate that, you know, he's very aware of every restraint that he operates under. He grew up in Rifle in Garfield County, not far from the Grand Mesa National Forest. In the 1980s, uh, that region, his hometown, I mean, there's like a virtual economic collapse because of the oil shale bust. Do you have a sense of what impact that had on him? It had an enormous impact on him from, you know, my understanding from both talking to him directly about it as well as to some of his close confidants. It demonstrated to him that decisions in Washington could have a tremendous impact on people across the country. It, you know, in this case, the Reagan administration's decision to cut off an energy department subsidy that essentially killed the oil shale business out there overnight. And he saw tons of his friend's parents suddenly unemployed as a result result of that. So it gave him a sense, I think, of the extent to which the federal government could act for good or for ill when it came to people who were living in these gateway communities out west. Why don't we talk about some other topics of importance to this area that Bernhardt plays a role in? I think of granting permits to access federal lands. I think the sage grouse is among them as well. What would you say is changing there under Bernhardt and Zinke? They are accelerating both the the speed in which drilling permits are being awarded in Colorado and other states out west, as well as the fact that they're putting a huge amount of oil and gas up for leasing, even when there's potentially some conflict with, say, other plans that are aimed at protecting species. So you see in areas where, for example, you have mule deer migration in Wyoming, they put a number of leases up for sale, which directly conflict with, say, this incredibly critical migration corridor. And in that case, they took some of them off the auction block, but not all of them after the governor of Wyoming protested. And what we're seeing, you know, kind of across the board is a push to open up as much land as is possible for oil and gas development, including potentially sometimes when it conflicts with the sage grouse, what you mentioned, an imperiled bird species, which, you know, exists in Colorado as well as several neighboring states. Thanks for being with us and sharing your reporting, Juliet. Thank you. Juliet Alprin is senior national affairs correspondent at The Washington Post. We spoke just a few weeks ago to discuss the number two at Interior, Colorado native David Bernhardt. His boss, Ryan Zinke, is stepping down. And we'll be right back with Colorado's next attorney general. We'll talk about the future of Obamacare. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Hey, I'm Jesse Witten from Colorado Public Radio's Open Air and one of the hosts of our brand new podcast, The Playlist League. What I love about this is it takes something as beautifully subjective and personal as music and makes it into a battle royale. It's a music conversation, but done competitively as we draft playlists song by song according to a theme each month. So if you like music discovery, bloodthirsty competition, or even just a fun casual hang session with some fellow music lovers, check out the Playlist League from CPR's Open Air. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. An appeal is in the works after a federal judge struck down the Affordable Care Act as unconstitutional, and Colorado may join other states questioning that ruling. 
Going into this weekend, Phil Weiser, Colorado's next attorney general, tweeted, The ACA decision needs to be reversed. If it stands, 17 million will lose health care coverage. Those under 26 no longer must be covered on their parents' plans, and those with pre-existing conditions won't be protected. The tweet goes on to say, I will join other state AGs to defend the law. Attorney General-elect, welcome to the program. It's great to be here, Ryan. You also tweeted, protecting those with pre-existing conditions is a BFD, a big deal. Freaking deal. Big uh, freaking deal. Okay. Joe Biden can use other words. Uh-huh. Uh, you also said that you will appeal the judge's decision, tweeting, we, presumably Democratic attorneys general, will be the ones putting out this fire and helping us recover from a self-inflicted wound. The effort to undermine the ACA is wrong and dangerous. No words minced. Talk about what you are planning to do once you're sworn in in January. I'm planning to defend health care. This ruling, wrong and dangerous are good words. Here's what the ruling said, that Congress, in changing the tax penalty to zero... Just in the la- last just, a tax overhaul. Exactly right. ...has taken away the authority for the individual mandate. That's problem number one, mistaken ruling. And then goes on to take insult on top of that injury and say, with there's no individual mandate, we should assume Congress doesn't want to have this law, the whole ACA at all. That second ruling is so shocking in its disregard for the rule of law. There's a doctrine called severability, which is when do you strike down a whole law? Congress didn't overturn the ACA. A judge shouldn't do so. Though the individual mandate was something of a keystone for the Affordable Care Act. But you're saying it's it's not so fundamental to the law that the law should collapse as a result of the removal of the individual mandate. Correct. Had Congress wanted to take down the whole law, it could have done that. It thought about doing it, decided not to. It's not for a judge to then read intent into Congress and undermine a whole law. In the analysis that I have read, uh, it seems that this ruling goes even beyond what the Trump administration had argued itself. Yes, the focus of the suit had been on the protection for people with pre-existing conditions. That had been what this case was centrally about. I think the Trump administration was also acting in a way that was lawless and wrongheaded on that issue. This case went even further. So what is the action that you take? Is it a suit that you join? Uh, tell, tell us There's actually two parallel suits. One is this one in Texas. It will be going to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. There's another action actually in Maryland that other state AGs are involved in. We will decide what is the best way to protect the people of Colorado. Because I'll tell you, when I went around Colorado, the protection for people with pre-existing conditions It is a big freaking deal. People care. People are nervous about their bankruptcy, about their kids. I want to protect Coloradans. Of course, this could eventually land back at the U.S. Supreme Court, which uh, in many ways saved Obamacare the first time around. But the complexion of that court is very different now. So that legal pathway doesn't guarantee the future of the Affordable Care Act by any means, does it? I see John Roberts as the swing vote. He was last time. He will be this time. I don't think he will act differently. I believe John Roberts will say the fact that Congress changed the tax penalty to zero dollars doesn't change anything. I believe this law will be upheld and it will be on the shoulders of John Roberts. Phil Weiser, when you talk about a federal judge's ruling in the way that you have, again, not mincing words, do you risk over politicizing, one, the office of attorney general and two, the judiciary? This is a tricky question at a tricky time. 
And let me just say yeah. that if there were, say, a Republican on this program currently yeah. talking about perhaps what is perceived as a liberal judge having yeah. made a decision you support, you might be singing a different tune. Well, I, I will get to be judged over time. And my commitment is to the rule of law. I worked at the Supreme Court for two different justices, Justice Byron White, Justice Ginsburg. I'm committed to the rule of law and getting the law right. The ruling that this judge just did, let me, again, go back to the second ruling because there were two and you noted that, about I'm going to strike down the whole law because I'm striking down the individual mandate. That second ruling is so breathtaking and so far-reaching that anyone who cares about the rule of law, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, you should be taken aback by it. The first point, I believe, is also wrong, which is to say I don't believe changing the tax penalty changes the analysis. That's a more debatable proposition, but my commitment is to protect the rule of law and protect people of Colorado. People may put political lenses on things. Over time, people can make a judgment. I'm here to protect people of Colorado. Speaking of uh, politics and partisanship, I want to note that you're the first attorney general in Colorado in about a decade to share the political party uh, that the governor does. How will you be a check on that office? I mean, is there a risk of being too aligned with one party's viewpoint? A couple of points on that bear mentioned. First off, my core responsibility is to the people of Colorado defending them, whether it's health care, addressing the opioid crisis, addressing water. That core work, it doesn't depend who the governor is. I've got that work. It's an independent lane. Second, vis-a-vis Governor Polis, I'm his lawyer. And I will be a lawyer committed to the rule of law, committed to guiding our state on the right path. And that commitment would be whether the governor was a Democrat or a Republican. What conversations have you had with Governor-elect Polis? What's been the nature of them? They are mostly in the planning stages. I'm I'm not yet his lawyer, but I soon will be his lawyer. And I will be able to say those conversations are attorney-client privileged. Uh Okay. (laughs) For now, they are more about planning how we work together. And it's very important for a lawyer to have a good relationship with his or her client. What is unfortunate, and you've probably seen this and you've reported on it, Governor Hickenlooper and our current attorney general, Cynthia Kaufman, have not had a harmonious relationship. They ended up actually in court against one another. They are from different parties. So let's talk about what is on your agenda. Uh, I won't delve further into attorney-client privilege. Uh, You're working with state lawmakers, I understand, on a bill in the next session to expunge marijuana convictions. Uh, This aligns with efforts certainly by district attorneys in Denver and Boulder. Why is this important to you? When people make a mistake and they are convicted of either consuming, possessing, or even dealing marijuana, they have both the penalty they paid at the time, but then they have this other stigma. They have to answer this question, have you ever committed a crime? Have you been convicted? Job applications, for example, or to even work in the marijuana industry, this is a prohibition. We have to ask ourselves, do we want people having that stigma, that burden, follow them for the rest of their lives? And we have come to the conclusion that this is no longer worthy of being judged as a crime. And yet this drug remains illegal federally. And you lumped into that dealing marijuana. Isn't dealing different than possession? Well, it depends on the circumstances. If you're in a college dorm and you sell marijuana to a friend, that counts as dealing marijuana. I believe you got to look at the circumstances. And this is what makes this issue a difficult one. The legislature needs to work through. And I'm here committed to work with the legislature to help us figure this out. Because part of the problem is there are all sorts of different scenarios. One scenario is you might have a plea bargain where you have several charges against you. One of them was a 
non-marijuana related issue, others are marijuana issues, you basically plead to the marijuana issue. If you go ahead and expunge that, in a way you're getting a bonus because you happen to have pled to that. So we need Mm. to figure out how to work through the best we can overall a, call it, regulatory system so that we can process expungements as efficiently and effectively as possible. How much uh, of this is about the kind of inequality and how this has been applied racially, for lack of a better term, but the fact that uh, there's a long history of different enforcement, if you're white or not? If that doesn't make you uncomfortable about this issue, it should, because your point is well taken. If you look at how these laws have been enforced, if it is the white kid in a college dorm versus a black kid outside the street, is the result differently sometimes? The data suggests it is. That, that of course, informs my thinking. But the bottom line is we now don't think this is a crime. We shouldn't have people carrying the burden of it. We can do something about it. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And Colorado's next attorney general, Phil Weiser, is my guest. We're getting a sense of where he hopes to lead the office when he gets sworn in in January. Uh, One of your campaign promises was to take on the opioid epidemic. Uh, It's estimated you say one person in Colorado dies every 17 hours from an opioid overdose. Uh, We've discussed this before. I think on election night, you plan to join a lawsuit against pharmaceutical companies accused of misleading consumers about the addictive quality of opioids. Uh, But I want to highlight another promise of yours, quoting here from your website, to help those suffering from addiction get treatment rather than putting them in jail or prison. I know that there are drug courts that certainly work on this. How else do you envision that working? Let me tie those two points together, Ryan, because they actually fit hand in glove. We have a lawsuit currently filed by Cynthia Coffin, the current attorney general. I will prosecute that lawsuit, work with it to successfully get a money damages result, maybe a settlement, take the money from that settlement. Let me say, against the opioid manufacturers. Against these manufacturers, Mm -hmm. companies like Purdue Pharma. We get money from that, and then we have an opportunity. And it's, a, I believe, once-in-a-generation opportunity to start funding drug treatment so that we have an alternative to jails. Uh, Your own Allison Sherry has done great reporting in Alamosa County, for example. And I was on the trail saying, I've heard from the the sheriff 90% 90% of the people in that jail are opioid users. And people said, oh, come on, that can't be true. What's your source for that? And I said, well, the sheriff told me. Well, Alice and Jerry did some reporting. You've documented it well. We need to look at that and say we've got to do better. Now, the problem in Alamosa County is there's not enough drug treatment. So what we need to do is get the money from this case against the pharmaceutical manufacturers and distributors and others who are culpable, get that money, and then use it to support drug treatment, start putting people in drug treatment instead of jail, and then change the cycle because we're now on this terrible cycle where people are addicted, they get arrested, they're in jail, they get back out, they get arrested again. We're not solving the problem. I want to talk about environmental protection. You've said that you might create a special unit at the attorney general's office to support local governments in their negotiations and dealings with oil and gas companies. Is that about giving more local control to municipalities to decide what's right for them when it comes to, to say, fracking? It gives them the tools and the guidance they need. So there's some localities, Longmont, Broomfield, that have been very aggressive in negotiating either surface use agreements or memorandums of understanding to protect their land, their air, in some cases, their water. Some of those communities have gone so far that the courts have smacked them back, in fact, with moratoria. Earlier ones, 
that has generated that sort of litigation, you can't do a moratorium. But you can do a lot of other things through these tools I mentioned. The goal I would have is to say to localities, here is a playbook. Here are some of the best practices that other localities have done. A lot of localities are dealing with this, never have done them before, and say, what do I do? I believe the attorney general, instead of waiting back and maybe suing them after the fact, can actually say up front, here are some guideposts for you to think about. What can you do? What should you do? Is that uh, an effort to avoid future litigation? In other words, if you have all of the the localities on the same page, frankly, with the oil and gas industry, in other words, wouldn't the industry be at the table there if you want to avoid future litigation? Yes. This is us in Colorado at our best. At our best, we're collaborative problem solvers. Think about how we did the methane rule. We brought the industry to the table. We said we're concerned about methane. It's harmful to human air and to climate change. we got to do something about it. We came up with a rule to address methane emissions. We can come up with rules to protect people in the face of oil and gas development. Okay, we have about a minute left. When you take office, another area that you plan to focus on is consumer protection, in particular, preventing financial fraud and scams. What do you believe previous attorneys general have been missing in that regard? A sense of urgency, a sense of responsiveness to people, and a commitment to going after people who've harmed others. My background's in consumer protection. I worked at the Justice Department under both Presidents Clinton and Obama. I'll take that expertise, and I'll take the commitment to helping people to bring this office to the next level. Who's getting duped? Who's most vulnerable right now? Elderly are among the most vulnerable. Sometimes even veterans coming back from serving are vulnerable. Anyone who students who have student debt, anyone who has a situation where they're desperate can be preyed on, I want to stand up for them. Phil Weiser, thank you for being with us. My pleasure. He's Colorado's next attorney general to be sworn in January 8th. In Metro Denver, there's something in the air when a snowstorm is coming. It's what Alex Toomes of North Glen asked about when he sent us his question through Colorado Wonders. Why does it smell like poo around Denver when it's about to snow? CPR's Kelly Griffin has the answer. The source of the smell isn't that mysterious. Alex called it just poo, but he does know what kind it is. Well, I've heard that it's because there's lots of cow manure and lots of cow farms north of Denver. He didn't really know the half of it, though. He's never seen the many vast feedlots in Weld County. That's why I met him at one in LaSalle, seven miles south of Greeley. This one can hold about 70,000 cows. Uh, it's, It's pretty obvious. This is exactly the smell. So yes, manure is what you are smelling ahead of a snowstorm. But why? Mike Nelson is the chief meteorologist at Denver 7. Everything in Colorado has to deal with terrain. And so if we have a northeasterly wind coming out of the northeast into Denver, that air starts up over the northeast plains, moves down into Denver. That's an upslope because it pushes up against the mountains to the west and the Palmer Divide to the south. Denver's kind of in a bowl. And that air is forced to rise, which condenses out the moisture, you get rain or snow. The reason why it sometimes smells like manure is that, think about what's up in Weld County. A lot of feedlots, and so that aroma is cast upon us on those northeasterly winds. And these upslope storms are pretty common, which is why... The old adage is, if it smells like Greeley, it's going to snow. Oh, they hate to hear that in Greeley. Brad Mueller is the city's director of development. Greeleyites are, again, proud of the heritage, but they also know that that's inaccurate. And it's important in 
today's world that we be accurate about things. So you just get an old stereotype that lingers. It lingers despite the fact there are no feedlots in Greeley. The city bought out the last one more than 20 years ago. And officials are working to counter the stereotype with a campaign called Greeley Unexpected to remind people of its non-agricultural heritage. Things like the Greeley Philharmonic Symphony, which is the oldest professional philharmonic west of the Mississippi, and the fact the city is home to the largest model train museum in the country. Several years ago, they even set up an odor hotline, and they've got state-certified odor inspectors, two of them. They rarely find odor violations in city limits. But here's the thing. Greeley is the county seat of Weld County, which is the size of Delaware. And Weld County isn't just the biggest ag producer in Colorado. It's one of the biggest ag counties in the nation, top 10. It produces more than $1 billion in ag products annually, and the bulk of that is livestock. So yeah, sometimes Greeley smells like agriculture. Meteorologist Mike Nelson, who says he loves Greeley, two of his children went to college there, he notes there's another way to look at that smell. Well, farmers and ranchers say that's the smell of money. (laughs) That's true. Ag is so important in Weld County, it has a right-to-farm policy that warns if you live there, you have to put up with things like odors from livestock. And in fact, the state exempts most ag operations from odor violations. It's just considered the cost of doing business. And cows do a lot of business on feedlots. Alex Toom says he's glad to finally get the backstory. I've heard the term upslope. I mean, there's there's a brewery named Upslope. I happen to like beer. But I've never heard of an upslope storm. And in the end, he says he doesn't mind the smell, knowing it usually means snow. Well, I used to snowboard a lot, so it would kind of excite me a little bit. Um, I don't love the smell, but it's good to know that it's coming. It's certainly not going to change. The cows aren't going away. The mountains and the Palmer Divide and the bowl that Denver sits in aren't going away. Which means the metro area's early warning system for snowstorms isn't going away either. And here's something that could be a point of pride. Mike Nelson says Denver's the only city in the country that can claim this unique distinction. I'm Kelly Griffin, CPR News. Maybe there's that person in your neighborhood who goes all out with holiday decorations. You know, the Clark Griswold types. 250 strands of light, 100 individual bulbs per strand for a grand total of 25,000 imported Italian twinkle lights. Drum roll, please. Uh, Joy to the world. If you've seen National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, then you know the big payoff is nothing. None of the lights turn on. But the Colorado family that calls themselves the Greeley Griswolds doesn't have that problem. They put on one of the biggest seasonal displays in Colorado, and it has landed them on the ABC show The Great Christmas Light Fight. Just setting up alone is over 300 man hours. And I start at the beginning of uh, October and and I'm out in the yard almost every day. Pretty much every bit of daylight that is available, I'm out there working on it. That's Papa Griswold, Mike Medhurst. This year, he put up around 180,000 lights. He gets help, though, from his son, Bailey. I started helping my dad when I was able to actually walk on the roof. And from then on, I was out helping him with everything I could. There's not a memory that I have that 
is not putting up Christmas lights. The Medhursts are featured on tonight's episode of The Light Fight. They're competing against three other families around the country for a trophy and $50,000. So does Mike feel like they have it in the bag? I'm actually not a very competitive person. Honestly, we did it just for the experience. Um, as far as my competition, I've never really viewed Christmas lights as competitive. If I don't end up winning, uh, I'm fine with that. As long as it's bringing happiness and hopefully my competition's displays are doing the same thing, then it's serving its purpose. And just in case you're wondering what happens to the 180,000 lights after Christmas... So I have a little bit of room in my uh, storage shed, and then my uncle, who's a dairy farmer here in Greeley, lets me use one of his barns. It's, it's barn storage for the Christmas lights. Mike Medhurst of Greeley. His family competes on tonight's episode of The Great Christmas Light Fight on ABC. We'll post photos of their impressive display to CPR.org later today. Thanks so much for spending time with us. This is CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner.